Hello, everyone. I'm Lee Savalixic, and this is the Artsbound Podcast, where I speak with professionals from across the performing arts industries to capture bits of wisdom, insight, and inspiration for young people exploring careers in music, theater, and dance. Today, I'm joined by Kendra Ross. Kendra has an incredibly diverse background in the performing arts, from being a businesswoman at Universal Music, working as a performer and a recording artist, and most recently being a full-time academic and professor. Kendra speaks about the unifying purpose that underlies all of the work that she's done, as well as the importance of identity development for young black female artists. Here's my conversation with Kendra. Hi, Kendra. Hi, how are you? Good. Thanks for taking the time to, to come and talk here. We appreciate Thanks for having me. Um, so in the intro, I talked just a little bit about what your background is, what you do, but why don't you start with just kind of giving listeners just a little bit of an idea of um, maybe where where you are in your uh, professional life now. Um, you've kind of come through a lot of different uh, channels and, and uh, time periods. And so um, just give us like a little snapshot of kind of how you've gotten to where you're doing, what you're doing now. Okay, sure. Great. Um, so I'll say that where I am in this moment is I, um, I just finished in April my first full year as a full-time professor at Point Park University in Pittsburgh. Um, I teach in the School of Business and I teach sports, arts, and entertainment management mostly arts and entertainment, but our department is called sports, arts, and entertainment. Sure. Um, I do have some athletes in my, and sports interested students um, in one of my one-on-one class in classes. But for the most part, I teach about record label management. I teach about event management. I teach, you know, things around music and art, which is my specialty. Um, so I'm really enjoying that. I was an adjunct for a year um, at this university where Point Park, where I also am wrapping up the very last week or two of my dissertation. So I've been studying there at Point Park community engagement and I've been focusing on like the intersections between community engagement and arts and race and gender, particularly here in the city of Pittsburgh. Um, so yeah, that's what I've been doing in the past you know, couple of years and I'm really enjoying what I'm doing, but at my core, I'm an artist. Um, I, I usually go by the moniker cultural worker though, because you know, I'm, politically and community motivated in the work that I do. And I see it as labor um, for, for, for a greater good beyond just like some people do art for art's sake and that's great and that's fine, but that's not really where I am. Um, do you want me to go back and tell you how I got here a little <laughs> bit? Uh, yeah. Why don't you? Yeah. Okay. So let's start from the beginning. So I, <laughs> I grew up here in Pittsburgh, um, always interested in the arts since I was, you know, a wee kid. I um, started out, you know, singing in church. Um, music and church uh, was the family business on on one side of my family. My grandfather was a pastor. Uncles were a pastor. Aunt, aunt was minister of music and organist and pianist. And my mother is a choir director. And so that's where I started singing. That's where I started getting in front of people and speaking and doing, um, you know, oratory competitions and things like that. And so that introduced me to, you know, what we would call the stage, even though in church, we, we don't call it that. Um, I also started taking dance lessons at a very young age here in Pittsburgh at a studio that was called Rosalind Kennett School of Dance, uh, which anybody from the South Hills of Pittsburgh will probably know about it. But like, um, there are people who've come out of that school that eventually have gone on to Broadway and things like that. So that was my start. Um, I always performed in, and, uh, and took lessons in whether it be singing or dance. Here in Pittsburgh, I started out with the Civic Lit Opera. Um, I was a mini star um, for many years and I was one of the first students in the Civic Lit Opera Academy. So I, I was in the inaugural class of the Civic Lit Opera Academy of Musical Theater. Um, so dance, acting, singing, and totally took it for granted that I was getting a world-class education. But <laughs> that's another story for another time. I also went to the performing arts school here, the middle school and the high school until I had to leave the high school. And we can talk about why. Um, but eventually I went to New York and I went to NYU and majored in music business because I decided 
although people push, were pushing me to major in musical theater, like Carnegie Mellon or something, something was telling me like, I am an artist, but I also have this other thing. And I'm interested in, I'm just interested in doing it at a different scale on a different level. And so um, I went to New York to become a music mogul, went to NYU, majored in music business and was really focused on the music business um, for a long time. And then I was working in the industry at a, you know, in my early twenties and kind of got stagnated and bored and got an opportunity to um, do Smokey Joe's Cafe, um, a small tour and um, a casino engagement. So I did that. And that was like um, a, just a breath of fresh air. I thought it was crazy that I was getting paid every week to like do something that I love, even though it was hard work. Um, and I was a swing and I had to know everyone's lines and everyone's moves and everyone's mm. parts. It was an amazing opportunity. Um, and then I was, you know, getting a lot of um, Broadway auditions and I was close to this, to Lion King and Aida and Little Shop of Horrors. And I was, was always coming down to the wire, but then I just realized I didn't enjoy the audition process. And I knew that as an actor, that was like a huge part of your life. And so I kind of like, even though I loved my Smokey Joe's experiences, I did two tours. I kind of like went back to the music business route. And that's kind of where I was for the past 20 years until I left last year to become a professor. So I worked at record labels. and um, For most of my career, I had a dual career of like being a record label professional by day and a music artist at night. Okay. So you, you described like this other thing that you had a sense of um, other than, you know, being a, an artist. Um, how do you describe, or could you tell us more about like how you knew what that was? Well, to be honest, I didn't, you know, I knew that there was something else that I wanted to be doing and or something else that I was going to be, that I was good at. Um, and I thought for a long time it was to be an executive in the music business. And I was kind of on that trajectory. And then I realized it, like everything else, it wasn't all it was cracked up to be. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was, you know, I liked parts of the work. I liked um, kind of being part of the process behind the scenes of, you know, making things happen, even if it was like super boring stuff, like going through spreadsheets of, you know, of songs and making sure we had the rights and things like that. Like, but I felt like I was part of a larger thing. And so for a long time I enjoyed it. And then quite frankly, I was just good at it. I was very good at the administrative side of the music business. And that's why I lasted so long in it, but I never made it up the ranks like I could have. Um, Cause in the first instance, I kind of got in and then I left. And then the second instance, I joined a department in an area that was less about, it wasn't like a, a, a really cool like record company uh, department like A&R or marketing. I was in like the very corporate section of it, which allowed me a lot of longevity, but there wasn't a lot of like schmoozing and all that stuff. It was just like, do the work. Sure, 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 sure. Um, so when I was there, like I had a good job and I found a way to like, oh, I'm in the music business, but I'm a lot more secure than most of my friends. Most of my friends were still like trying to make ends meet. You know, I had been there being a theater artist, like working sample sales and, you know, working at a little, little, a little French cafe at one point. Uh, you know, I've worked in vintage stores in New York City, just trying to make ends meet. And I got tired of that. Mm-hmm. I got tired of the hustle of auditioning. And um, it, I realized that like the, 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 the way people kind of mystify that and make it part of the whole thing, that story, and like, oh, I waited tables. Like I didn't, I wasn't, I didn't find that attractive. Like, I don't want to go through all that. <laughs> like, I want to make <laughs> sure. sure that I want to know that my rent is paid and I should, I should be able to feel that way and still be an artist because a lot of times uh, folks would be like, well, you're not really an artist if you're not willing to struggle and sleep on people's couches. And I'm like, mm, I don't think that's true. Um, so yeah, I knew there was this other thing, but I, I was searching. And so even when I was at the record labels, it still didn't feel like enough. So after about a six or seven years, I started to become um, the quintessential professional student. So I, I, I always said when I left NYU, like before NYU, I thought I'd go to law school and become an entertainment lawyer. After NYU, I was like, I'm never going back to school again. That was too much. And then like six years later, I was getting the itch. I'm like, there's something out there in the world. I don't know what it is. This is good. It's still not enough. And so I started going back. I got a master's in liberal arts and then I left. And then I went and got a master's in anthropology. 
and I was recording music and I was doing background vocals. I mean, I lived the life of three or four people in a given day, every day for years. Um, and so I was just, and I realized now that it was just a quest that I was on for like finding that thing. Um, and I don't know that I have found that thing, but I know that I've gained so much from the journey of like, is it business? Is it an arts administration? Is it, you know, now, you know, being a professor and being an educator and also doing community organizing work through the arts. And I want to say, yes, it's all of it. You know, I'm just that person that likes to try a lot of different things. And I think the, the, the foundation of my purpose is, is how do we use arts and culture um, to build equity and justice into our world and to make a better world for more people. So that can happen in business. That can happen through commerce. That can happen through community work, all those things. Yeah. So to, so to crystallize what I, what I think I heard you just say is that what you are finding is that in terms of like building a professional life, you have a lot of different things that you're pretty good at and really enjoy doing. Um, but what you're finding is that there's like a core mission and purpose that is kind of underlying all of that. And as long as that you're able to like first, first, like, be in alignment with that with that purpose and then do something that you enjoy doing and feel like you're good at doing um then you kind of feel like you're on the right track yes you've said it actually much better than i even said it it's 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 not the it's not the uh the occupation it's the vocation which is or yeah it's the vocation which is like what is my purpose what is my driving and it can be in a classroom you know i tell people it could be if it came down to it, it could be in the produce section of Trader Joe's if I was making someone's life better. And, you know, like I'm not as caught up in like the title of what I am. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, it took me a long time to get there because for a long time I felt like maybe I'm not a real artist, you know, because I haven't recorded a song in a couple of years, you know? Yeah. Well, and that's interesting. You know, you mentioned this whole idea um I refer to it as the myth of the starving artist and not like myth, like it doesn't exist, but the idea of like a story, like a, a piece of mythology that we, that we tell, um, uh, we have, cause there are like, I know people that like it, that actually embody that archetype of the starving artist, right? Like they wouldn't be living their truth if they weren't the starving artist. But, um, I think that that myth permeates our culture in so many ways that it, it, drives people who are are really truly artists at their core um away from pursuing artistic activity because they say uh, like just basically what you said like uh maybe this isn't really for me because um because i'm not doing it actively right now or i'm not sleeping on people's couches and um and there's really there's a there's another way i agree with that i agree that you what you just said about it driving people away i mean i have friends some of the most talented people i've ever like you know, performed with or trained with or, you know, are folks who decided to maybe get married and have kids and can't just be on people's couches. And then from that, they felt like they had to give it up totally because it's like either or. And um, it shouldn't have to be that way, you know, but, you know, that's just like you said, how society kind of, it's the myth that it feeds us. And some people embody that, but there should be an understanding that there's other ways. Yeah. I love what you said about like living the life of three or four different people in a given day, because honestly, when, when, when a person looks at what you've done, um, looks at your CV, for example, um, it's like, oh, well, here's, here's Kendra, the businesswoman, and here's Kendra, the artist, and here's Kendra, the academic, like, uh, you know, you've talked about being a professional student. You have two master's degrees. You're almost done with a doctoral degree. Um, like you have a really substantial, academic background in addition to all of the professional things that you've done as well. Um, talk a little bit about that. Like how did you get into giving conference presentations and, uh, and speaking for colleges? Yeah. So I'll go back. So yeah, like I said, I didn't think I would ever go back to school. And then, you know, I was sitting at a desk at universal music where I worked for off and on for almost 20 years, but the last stint I was there for 17 years straight. Um, and I was there initially as a temp and I had been there for two years and I'm just like, this can't be what it is. Like you can't go to college and get like thousands of dollars in debt 
just to say you work at the biggest music company in the world sitting at this cubicle, like this isn't it. And so I, you know, and I, my job was one, it was, I won't say it was easy, but like, I was one of those people that like, they would give me something to do that they thought would take me a week and I would get it done in a day. <laughs> cause I was, cause I'm like either scatterbrained or focused. And once I'm yeah, focused, sure. it's, it's, it's over. So I just go in. And so I would have this free time at work and I would just like Google and, and search and, and I'm like, maybe I need to go back to school. But first of all, I got out of NYU, but I didn't like, I wasn't like an A student at NYU. <laughs> like it was like, you know, I got my degree. I did what I had to do. I didn't fail, but you know, I didn't have yeah. the best GPA. So I knew I wasn't going to get into like some fabulous graduate program, but I didn't know exactly what I wanted to study. And then I found after like lots of searching, um, a degree program in liberal studies um, at Brooklyn College, um, which I loved because it was just like, this is a program for adults. It's, it's after work hours, folks who need a master's degree for their job or people who are just curious about the world. And we talked, we had like these, these seminars where we would have like anthropology, sociology, and religion in one seminar. And then, uh, you know, computer science, literature, and linguistics in another seminar. Like wow. incredible, like different viewpoints on how to look at the world. And I had like all these, what I really loved is I had all these, it gave me a new kind of perspective on like, um, like I had, like I had this, like a couple, we did, um, we read um, the Brothers Dostoevsky in one class in, in this literature class there. And it was just like reading that book about some folks in Russia and our, things like that. I was like, there's so much more to like what life's about in the world than what I've been, been sold, you know, of like, you know, become famous or go get rich or do all these things. And then none of that stuff matters. This is what matters. And I got, re I mean, I was really into it. I really loved all the stuff I was reading. I loved, you know, I had these like, you know, these older reformed Jewish professors that were like, like the kind of professors you'd see in like the movies where like they're all disheveled and they have the pocket protectors and they're kind of like the mats, but they were just like so into what they were doing. They had been there for years and like, they um they saw something in me and they helped cultivate that and it was just an experience that I had never expected. I really enjoyed Brooklyn College, um and that kind of changed the trajectory of my life. There, you know, I learned about anthropology. I became very obsessed with Catherine Dunham, who was a dancer and an anthropologist, and um, Zora Neale Hurston, who was a writer and anthropologist. They were both black women who were anthropologists and did amazing work that the field uses today, but they never got the opportunity to get their doctorates. One, because Catherine Dunham was told by the University of Chicago, you're bright, but you have to make a choice. Either you're a dancer or you're an anthropologist. Um, the other, Zora Neale Hurston, was, had come from poverty and it took her so long to actually get to college that she lied about her age because she looked younger. But by the time she got to Columbia University um, and Barnard working with, you know, some of the top anthropologists ever, um, she was already like almost 40. Um, and so it became my mission to kind of like, I was like, I need to finish their work. And, and it's, that kind of like led me to that next level. I'm like, okay, I need to get a doctorate. I'd never in a million years thought I would be interested in like getting a doctorate. Um, but so I went and applied, I went to the new school for social research in New York City, which, you know, the history of that university was that it was a university um, of the exile where folks who were being persecuted in other countries um, were able to come to escape genocide and things like that back in the day. And so I was like, okay, this is, this is where I need to be. And so I ended up getting another master's in anthropology, but I did not get kept for the PhD. They had to like let you in. And they said, there was no one there for me to work with on what I cared about. So I applied and I applied to all these prestigious universities and I didn't get into any programs. I'm like, okay, so maybe this isn't my thing. So now I was kind of stuck. Um, and prior to that, I had put out an album, um, like right before I, I started the graduate program and I was going to put out another one and that wasn't coming together, but I still had interest. And so I started doing independent research, um, things that I cared about, like, um, like I said, the intersection between like anthropology and like the arts and black women. Cause my concern has always been like, how has the arts shaped me as a black woman? Like, why, why do I think that this kind of world and this kind of opportunity is available to me when I didn't see it 
when I didn't come from a lot of resources. Like I didn't, I didn't have an example for that. So what is it about me that has given me like almost like self driven privilege? Not to say I didn't have any privilege, like in the sense that, you know, I, I didn't grow up in poverty or anything, but like how, what made me dare to like take a different route? And my argument has always been is that my participate in the arts has like, it opened the world to me because it, my, it freed my imagination to say, you know what? I can be a part of a different world. I can have a different life than what has been prescribed for me as a black woman. And so I kept on that trajectory and I started doing research on my own and uh, presenting it. And that would be my vacation. So I was working at Universal Music Group the whole time I was in grad school, both times. And then for vacation, instead of going to the beach, I would go to a conference and present a paper. Sure. Or I'd go volunteer. You know, a friend of mine had an organization, uh, a program for uh, young folks in the Methodist church, teaching them to be community developers and organizers. I would go help them, you know, and do that. So, I, you know, I, again, straddling that world, you know. And so, yeah. And then I eventually, we fast forward, after giving up on the PhD kind of, moved back to Pittsburgh to say, you know what, I need to focus on being an artist. And I can't do that if I'm running around New York and being a corporate titan and blah, 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 blah. So I moved to, back to Pittsburgh. And after being here almost a year, this program just popped up on my Twitter feed. Community engagement, PhD in community engagement. I'm like, what the heck is that? I've never heard of that. And I looked into it and I went to what I thought was an information session, which actually ended up being an interview. <laughs> um, and I, you know, it was like a group interview and an and a entrance, entrance exam. And I aced the exam and I only aced it because I didn't know what I was going to. So I didn't have time to freak out. Sure. Right. So I was just like, oh, they said, you know, write about this. And I was in the computer lab just because <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I had not there, I had, there were no stakes, you know, so and I ended up getting in and that was five years ago. So wow, here I am. Yeah. Um, yours is such uh, an important testimonial. Kendra and I and honestly it's giving me um with with the work that I do not with Artsbound uh but with Pittsburgh Youth Course um it uh it's encouraging me to to hear you just share that to say like it was my involvement in the arts that is something that that has driven me forward into doing you know but you know taking life um into my own hands and and running with it Absolutely. I, I'm, I'm a firm believer. I mean, I believe that's like my calling is to like say that arts and culture is it. That is what that is the game changer. I believe that's what's going to change the world again, like at least be the catalyst. It can't be the only thing, but like it's always art. It's always art. It's only art that always kind of like shifts the tide for me personally. And I think for the world. Yeah. So one of the things that I wanted to ask you about, and I'm just going to um, just make sure that I look at my notes here and um, so you're, you've mentioned several times that the way that you're looking at your work with, um, community engagement is, um, is as a black woman and, uh, specifically interested in the work of black women and, um, how it can help to transform and shape a community. Um, tell us, tell us more about what you're, you're doing with, that specifically. And I don't know if you see them as being related, but I'm also interested in, you know, you talked about um, a, a lot of family members that you had that were obviously really crucial members of your church and therefore your community, um, including black women. And um, so how do you think having musicians and artists as family members has also kind of helped shape, you know, where you've come from and what you're doing. Good question. Um, so for the first half, um, <clears throat> my first thesis for my, well, my, my thesis for my master's was about like, again, like how uh, young black women can kind of forge an identity for themselves through arts and culture and how um, race and gender kind of informs that, but then arts then in turn informs how they themselves kind of live out that life. Um, but for me, like, you know, 
I've been in a lot of spaces where people will say, well, you talk about race and you talk about gender all the time and, and identity politics, but I'm like, no, like we need to be really clear about our social location. If you're a white man, heterosexual man from XYZ, you need to be clear about that. It doesn't mean that you need to weaponize it, you know, but you need to be clear on what that enables, what that, you know, what that disables. You know, I'm very clear on my social location and what that means in terms of privilege, but also what that means in terms of oppression and the things that I've had to overcome and the things that I experienced to get where I am. And so I'm, I, I, I see the world that way, but the world sees me that way too. But the, the quality difference of what that means is different from way I'm seen and way I see, right? So um, my work now, so my, even my dissertation work now is about black women cultural workers in the Hill District. And the reason why that's important to me because the Hill District is such an important site of like how we talk about, you know, black Pittsburgh, about, you know, the, the artistic and cultural contributions of Pittsburgh to the world. Um, so much of what the world has gotten in terms of arts and culture from this region comes out of the Hill District. Um, but the face of it is, is a lot of times, rightfully so, amazing people, but they're mostly men, Black men. Sure. August Wilson, Teeny Harris, George Benson, you know, all these jazz musicians that come out. Women are sprinkled in here and there. But that story is not centered. And so, like, I've made it my mission to try to center some of those voices, not just artists, but community organizers and arts administrators and folks who are doing important work to kind of hate, help to maintain the culture. And I think that's just, if we really look at it, even though U.S. culture completely, Black women have made so many contributions to it and continue to do so. And one or two or three or four are afforded, like, the kind of recognition and fame that they deserve for that work, but there's so many behind that, behind those people who don't get recognized. And so part of it for me is like being clear on who I am and where I come from and my social location. But part of it for me is like uplifting and centering um, a group of people who have been large, have gone largely unrecognized and um, underappreciated in a city where I hate to hear it over and over again, but where reports come out from University of Pittsburgh and from this magazine, this magazine that Pittsburgh is, the worst place for black women to live in the entire United States. And this is the place I left New York, you know, a city that I love to come back to. Right. What is, why is that? And that's, and I, and I'm drawn because that's part of my calling. And like, you know, what happened to the arts infrastructure for people in the Pittsburgh public schools? I came, I came out of the Pittsburgh public schools where Kappa, when it was in Homewood and it wasn't downtown and didn't have all the resources was turning out Billy Porters was turning out, you know, J.R. Whittington and other folks who have done amazing things in the arts, you know, world-class musicians, uh, Imani wins. I mean, there's, you know, we had, we had more with less 20 years ago than we do now. And then we're looking at, you know, young black children coming out of Pittsburgh public schools and saying what happened. And I believe that the way that the arts have kind of been undermined and like they bring stuff back and then they kind of do it half, you know, halfway and, I feel like that's undermined a lot of, you know, black communities here in this city. And I, and I find it problematic. And so they're piecemealing it with funders and all this stuff when it should be at the core of what students are getting a day in and day out. You're right. Yeah. So, and then in terms of like my family and, you know, you know, my mother still sings in the praise team at her church, Macedonia, which is on the Hill, which is the church I grew up in. You know, my family members are very much still choir you know, singers and stuff like that. And, and it definitely informs who I am. And, I, and my grandfather was a pastor and an activist. And I believe that in a lot of ways I have his spirit. And I think in some ways I'm a I minister in a certain way. But the, ch I, I, the church is not really my space for that. Because A, I'm a, I consider myself a feminist. And feminism and church don't kind of work all the time. Uh, but also I believe that like there's boundaries that I'm willing to push as a human being that... Um, the church just doesn't, you know, it doesn't allow for it. Just meaning it's just, I have to take it to that next level beyond the walls. And so I think that my church background um, with both the preachers and the musicians have definitely informed how I move in the world, how I present myself, my worldview. But I think I just take it a little bit beyond the boundaries of, you know, the, the religiosity of it. Um, and, and kind of bring it to more, to a wider array of people. Um, you know, because 
you know, and some churches are do push those boundaries. You know, it's not a critique of church, but like the work that I'm doing, it needs to be um, accessible to, you know, trans folks. It needs to be accessible to, you know, it needs to be accessible to folks who who don't want to be in that building. Right. So sure. uh, and people need to be comfortable in the spaces that I'm in and the work that I'm doing. And, and I'm working on myself in that, in that regard as well. So yeah, black feminism and my roots dealing with black women in the church, even not my family have done so much for who I am and like how they make something out of nothing, how they, you know, do fish dinners to send kids to college. You know, I've seen that. I've seen, you know, church women adopt me, even in Brooklyn in my church in Brooklyn adopt me, as their fake godchild, even though they didn't know me until I was 25 or 30, and you know, slipped me a hundred dollars, you know, every other week to help me pay for grad school. You know, I've seen that. And I was those were church women. So yeah, you know, black women, I'm a champion of black women for sure. Yeah. You use a phrase that I feel like is a theme that I have seen in things you've written, things, uh, things you've said in other interviews, uh, which is beyond the walls. And, um, I'm, I'm curious. So like, uh, you, you gave us a little, a a little teaser about, um, leaving Kappa when you were in high school. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, you want to tell us more about that? Well, I love telling the story because I tell it because people look at me and see all the things I've done and said, not you, Kendra. (laughs) <laughs> and so I, I tell it because I want young people to know that if they've gotten into themselves into like a situation that they feel like they can't overcome, that they can. It's just about like how you respond to things. So it actually what happened is when I was at Kappa, I was restless. Excuse me. Not because I was great at everything. It's just that I was interested in everything, which you can yeah. see is a theme that still runs in my life. So I came into Kappa as, did I come in as a music or a musical theater student? I came in as one of them, but I changed my major so much because I was bored after a while. Like, okay, I've done the musicals. Let me move to this department. Okay. I, you know, sung all the arias or whatever. All right, let me move to this department. So I had been in the music department. I had been in the theater department and I decided for some ridiculous reason to join the dance department. Never been like, I love movement, but I don't love the discipline of like being aching and having aches and pains every day at 14 and 15 years old, um, which dance was. But I, you know, I wanted to challenge myself. And again, I'm not saying that I was the best singer or the best actor, but like that work came easier to me. And so going to dance was a challenge for me. So I I joined the dance department. And I think that kind of like was the turning point. So we went to a dance convention that they have every year at different universities. It was at the University of the Arts in Philly. And this is the craziest story. Story. I didn't really do anything wrong, but wrong place, wrong time, wrong decisions. A friend of mine had um, older male friend. It was actually, she had an older boyfriend who lived not far from there. So he came with his friend who I knew that she had introduced me to, to where we were staying. And I was downstairs hanging out with her friend because I'm like very by the book with stuff like that. I'm like, yeah, no, I know this guy, great, but I'm not getting in trouble. She was upstairs in our room not doing anything bad. She was, she was talking to the dude, but he was in the room. And our school had a no tolerance policy with that. Boy, no boys in the room. Right. So I go upstairs and two of my dance teachers are outside of our room and they say, there's a boy in the room. Who brought the boy in the room? And me and the other roommate, we didn't want to squeal because we just felt like it wasn't necessary. So we just said, I don't know. So because none of us confessed to who was the boy in the room, we all got kicked out of school. (laughs) And that was my junior, that was like the spring of my junior year. Okay. So for about two weeks, I thought my world had like completely come to an end. You know, I still had civic light opera, you know, and all that stuff. But for Kappa was like my world. Like that Kappa students, it's so, well, back then, I don't know how it is now, but it was so small and so close knit that we were like a family. It felt like, you know, I had just been severed from my family. And so I, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm, you know, how, how can life go on? Like, what, what will I do? Right. 
So, but it ended up being a very good thing for me because it gave me a different perspective. If I would have stayed at Kappa, I probably would have just towed the line and they would have said, Kendra, go to CMU, study with this person, even though all the teachers at the time that were teaching at CMU were also teaching at Kappa. My acting teacher, my dance teacher, my voice teacher, either, either I had them at Kappa or I had them at Civic Light Opera. So I had all the same teachers. Uh-huh. I'm like, why am I going to go pay all that money to have the same teachers that I have now? You know, one teacher, Ms. Dem- one of our teachers, Miss D'Ambrosia, was teaching me and um, Blair Underwood at the same, almost at the same time when he was in college when I was in, you know, whatever. So I said, why am I going to do that? So once I got older, oh, I also had Kappa. The guidance counselor told me not to even bother applying to NYU because I wouldn't get in. Fast forward, I go to a normal high school and because I have that arts background, I see the world differently. Like I just move differently and they noticed that and they just poured into me and I ended up doing very well, speaking at high school graduation, getting into like all these colleges, they paid for all my applications and what seemed to be like the worst thing that ever happened to me actually ended up being a really good thing because I would have probably never even applied to NYU had I stayed at Kappa. Sorry if that was long. No, no, that's fantastic. So, um, yeah, so uh, it just seemed like, again, that phrase beyond the walls just kind of hit me as like here there were kind of all of these institutional expectations that you describe as being kind of laid out in front of you that you did not necessarily let define you or the way that you were going to do things. No. Yeah. And, um, the, the article, you had a little feature in a, in a Pittsburgh magazine called public source where you said, um, something to the, the effect of, uh, I, I choose to move through the world and life on my own terms. And that also hit me. And, um, you know, I, I'm thinking about young people who are listening who, uh, you know, might be in a similar situation where they they have all these people saying, well, you should do this or do this or do this or go to this school or, you know. Um, and again, a kind of all of this traditional institutional expectations or wisdom, whatever you want to call it, um, that you you chose to do something differently and somebody might be listening that kind of has the same sense of uh you know i i i i really respect these people who are speaking into my life in this way but i still feel something else that's calling me in a in a specific direction um so for you what does it mean to move through the world on your own terms and have there been times when you have found that to be a challenge where like where you were tempted to follow someone else's expectations that didn't quite feel right? And and how do you you know, how do, how do you stay true to that? Man, yeah. You know, it, first of all, absolutely. It's, it's a challenge most times, if not all the time. It's a rewarding challenge. You know, there's a book called The Beautiful Struggle. And that's mm-hmm. what I think um, life is. And you can either run away from that beautiful struggle or you can embrace it. And I know that's like sort of cliche, but it's absolutely true. And like, you know, the path that I've charted for myself, I've veered off from it from time to time and said, you know what, let me just go ahead and try to be like everybody else. It's easier. (laughs) You know what I mean? Um, You know, even like, because it caused problems, not just in terms of peers, but even authority. Like my mom, I used to drive my mother crazy. It's not even until, it's not until literally recently, and I'm like in my 40s, <laughs> where my mom has finally stopped put, like arguing with me about stuff. I'm like, mom, I, you know I'm never going to do what you, like, what you think is the conventional route. Why do you even yeah. Now she doesn't even push back, and she's like, okay, you're going to do what you're going to do anyway, so let me just stop. Like, even to the point of, like, the colors that I painted in my house, like <laughs> orange, and my mother was like, oh, that's not going to look good. And then I do it, and she's like, hmm. I was like, mom, there's a vision that God gave me that nobody else has. And so me always trying to check in with folks to make sure that it makes sense to them doesn't really work because he didn't, God, she, he, God, they did not give it to those people. So they're not going to get it. They'll, you know, they, not to say they can't speak it to speak to it and pour into me and they can't help me along the way, but they're not going to see what I see. And 
um, as soon as I was able to embrace that, like it's been a game changer. Now, again, we all get vulnerable and we all have moments where we want things to just be easier. And so there are moments where I'm like, man, like even with my dissertation, why can't I phone it in like some people and just like put something down? It's not, it's not who I am. It's not because I'm better. It's just the nature of how I kind of roll. Um, And then, you know, really another kind of common quote that people use, comparison is the thief of joy. Hmm. You know, like when every, anytime I compare myself to other people, I always sink into some funk because I'm always like, it's never going to look like it's someone's always going to look like they have more of something. And then you dig deeper into their life, life and you find, you look behind the Instagram post and you see the hell that they're going through, or you see that like, it's not all, everything that glitters is not gold. And so you're best to keep your eyes on your own paper. Like they say in school um, and just, uh, and, and, and follow the path that you're, you're on. And like, when I first read The Alchemist, um, that book, The Alchemist. What, a, what an amazing, beautiful book. Yeah. Yes. And I was like, this is amazing. But I've, now that I've lived longer, because I was younger when I read that book, but, and I need to reread it again. I just talked about that two weeks ago. But now that I've lived a little bit and, and has seen how little along the way little nuggets have been left and hmm. the favor bank that I've paid into and, and, and pulled out of, that book... Like I recommend all young people read that book and 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 and, cl- and cling to it um, because it's real. And I feel like I've lived kind of. I'm not the alchemist, <laughs> you know what I mean? But like, <laughs> but like I've I've drawn from that, and, and and I see some parallels between that story and and the way I've tried. I'm not. I haven't always succeeded to live my life. So like, you know what? To some people, I might be all over the place. You know, I may not be. You know first chair in an orchestra level proficiency of a, as an artist or a musician, but I've, I've lived and I've crafted for myself already a full life. And if I don't ever do another thing, I feel like I've lived a, I've lived a very full life. Um, and uh, I really, I'm really appreciative that I feel very blessed in that regard. And so, yeah, look, you know, comparison is a thief of joy and really just kind of like, you know, no one, you're the one that has received the vision. So don't, don't expect everyone to be on board right away with what you're trying to do what you think to do but you're if it's meant for you is it won't it won't leave you you know what i mean it'll, it'll follow you there are so many artists that are somewhere right now at a desk that there's a there's a burning in them that they can't get rid of no matter how hard they try they can fight it but it's not going to just go away that's amazing yeah i and i love um I love that you brought up The Alchemist um, and that you're talking about comparison. I, I'm actually working with a life coach right now, and he describes comparison as a resistance to being who we are. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I struggle with it, you know, still to this day. But, I, you know, I'm, you know I never was much into the signs, but I'm, if, if when you ever look at like a Sagittarius and it's always like traveler and this and that, that's me. Like sure. I'm definitely a Sagittarius. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, what you described about the, you know, the gave me goosebumps talking about, um, you know, he describes it as a, as a fable, the alchemist Mm -hmm. and, uh, and the, the story there, the way that I think about it is like, you know, we, we hear this sense, there's something that's kind of calling us in a direction that is really easy to ignore or it's a really easy to hear those other external voices um, as being louder or more important. Um, but that when we choose to listen, like when we click in, um, that uh, we tap into something that we can, we can like kind of get into and, and expand. And then like the, the opportunities and the possibilities that we have in our life expand. And then it gets easier. Like it's, it's almost like a, a, a practice or a skill like listening to our own intuition um, that we, I think, spend a lifetime developing, but it gets it gets easier the the more you do it. Absolutely, and in certain sometimes moments just feel so serendipitous, and you're like, no, this was actually like the other sign. Because sometimes you need those signs that remind you that yeah, I am on the right path. Everything yep. can't be a barrier. Sometimes you're like, oh my yep. gosh, I. This is what I, this is the way I was supposed to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not it's like you can see it happening. Like you can look back and say, "Oh my goodness, all of these things that led me to here." Every step, yeah. I can. Yeah, I can. I have one other 
bullet point here that I wanted to be sure to ask you about. Um, and you spoke to it a little bit, but I, I'm really uh, interested, especially, uh, again, you know, thinking about uh, who we are in the social sphere, where we sit in that world, um, and the work that you're doing with looking at the work of black women um, and how it shapes our communities. Um, in terms of community engagement, social justice, what is your vision and and like what is the what is the thing that you can see out on the horizon that keeps that sense of purpose going for you, and um you you spoke to the arts like being the thing. Well, how are they the thing? What like you know what is a what is a uh, a young black woman, you know who's a singer, who's listening to this. Um, how does she? How does she play into that? How does she contribute to that? How are the arts shaping what you see as being the future of a more just society? Oh, that's a lot. <laughs> that is, um, but it's a good question. I will say that from that last piece of your question about the young black singer, and I would say that one thing I've had to learn, and that I'm still struggling with, is like I don't always love the sound of my voice. And me either. You're right. And there are singers whose there's singer whose voices I just like like I listen to like someone like Sarah Vaughn or you know, or the singer Liz Wright and these people that have like these buttery vocals that just make you want to melt. And I'm like, how can I be a singer? I don't sound like that. But you know, one thing I I try to remind myself and I don't always remember is that like the best singers are not always the ones that are sound the prettiest, but like it's just the way they use their voice to to evoke to you know like to, to pull emotion out of you or to get you to go do something like Nina Simone is a perfect example of that. Like Nina Simone's voice, she does things with it on purpose to, to make it sound like she's running her fingernails across, you know, a chalkboard, but it, it, it calls you to something. Right. And so, you know, she makes, you know, like I can be angry or I can be sad or I can want to get up and start the revolution just from listening to her voice in one given sitting. And, you know, you're given a voice not just to be pretty or sound pretty or to to make the world aesthetically more beautiful in whatever European terms that means, but you're you're given a voice to like as like a almost like a call to something greater. And so I was telling a friend the other day we were talking about her possibly like running for office one day, and she was saying, "Oh, I want my cabinet to be you and all these other these women." And I said, "What what might the world look like, or what might Pittsburgh look like?" if black women cultural workers and artists weren't invited to tables, but were the ones inviting other folks to the tables. So what would it look like if the way we reshape policy, the way we reshape education, the way we reshape all these things was not about artists and cultural workers being like this add on that like, you know what, let's bring one of them to the table. They, they're creative um, after half the plan's already done. Right. What if we were the ones kind of like um, providing like that first vision um, and, and, and then doing that work to say, okay, here's the world we all agree that we want to see. What are all those things that are like making it impossible for us to see it? And what are those things that can help enable that? And then identifying folks who are able to do things like why are the, why are developers and politicians deciding the world that we, we should have when really the vision is coming from the creative people, the people who use their imagination as part of their everyday life. And then for, if you're, if you want to, if you have like a certain skill set to kind of fit into that vision, great. And so for me, that's really the answer is like folks who, who dare to like see and envision a world different than the one they have, we have today should be the ones kind of, I won't say lead because it doesn't have to be a hierarchy, but should be facilitating a lot of these conversations and should be kind of connecting dots for folks. And I think that's part of, the role I see myself in as a convener, both a disruptor and a convener of saying, I'm, I have my artist hat on and I'm working with other artists to kind of build this vision. But then sometimes I have my educator hat on to like kind of show young people and folks like where they're gifted and how they can fit into that, my vision or their vision or the world vision. And then I have my business hat that says, we know we need a developer. We know we need a finance person. We know we need this. And so 
I think there are a lot more people like me. You know, I know in my circle, there's some people like me, but there are a lot more people like me, not me like, oh, I'm the greatest, but me who dare to say, you know what, I'm not just this thing. And we have a vision for the world that is is greater than the one we have today. And no one has to lose. So part of the problem that we have right now is that everybody thinks that in order to make the world more just and equitable, they have to lose something. And that is false. That is absolutely false. It may look different. Mm-hmm. You may have to pay more taxes for a while, mm-hmm. right? You may have to do this, but you will not lose. You have nothing. To, you you have nothing to do but gain because why hoard resources when you spend your whole time uh, fearing everyone else around you because you know that you don't really deserve them all, and so you have to be on the defense all the time. Like, right? If we were more equitable, you wouldn't need to do that, right? So that's the other part of the work is like trying to uh. convince people that like. If we if if we if we build a more equitable and just world, no one loses. No one loses. And what does what does winning and success look like? You know, we have to decide that for ourselves. So, I don't know if that helped answer your question. Uh, it did. And and if I see your name on a ballot, you've got my vote. It's oh no, you don't. You don't want me to be. <laughs> you don't want me running for office. No, I can do my work from right over here. Yeah, no. Mm-mm. But I appreciate it. Sure. <laughs> Well, thanks again. This has been awesome. Thank you. No, this is it's been great. I like uh, this has been a good. It's been therapeutic. It's my second therapy session of the week. <laughs> <laughs> well, therapeutic and inspiring. I want to thank Kendra Ross again for taking the time to talk with us. If you want to learn more about Kendra's work, you can visit the website for Act Three Consulting Partners. That's the word ACT, A-C-T, the number three, the letter C as in cat, the letter P as in paul.com. You can also check out the work she's doing with the Hill District at hilldistrictartsplan.com. And if you are in school or the first 10 years or so of your career and looking at new work in the performing arts, Learn more about how you can expand your options and design a career that is meaningful and fulfilling to you by visiting artsboundcareerdesign.com. Our theme music for the Artsbound podcast is composed by Chris Lidecker. I'm Lee Savaliksik. Thanks for listening.